0: to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people and mysteries throughout history. Today is going to be part two of John Dillinger. Mm, I can't wait. I am so excited to get back to the story. So where we left off last week, which again, let me just stop and say if you are listening to this in the future, and you're not listening from episode one, you're going to need to go back and listen to the previous episode to understand this one because this is a hard part too mm-hmm. i'm not going to do a big recap but so where we last left john he is in chicago with his girlfriend billy frechette he tried to go to a doctor's appointment and was ambushed uh by the chicago pd along with the chicago scotland yard They are being chased very cinematically. They narrowly escaped across a trolley track just as two trolleys were coming, leaving the police behind them. That's so cool. It is so cool. Are you ready for more? I'm ready. Okay, let's go. So five days later, the gang traveled to Racine, Wisconsin to rob the American Bank and Trust Company. So while Clark waited in the car and Pierpont busied himself pasting a giant Red Cross poster over the bank window, Dillinger... Hamilton and Makeley went inside. Dillinger ushered the president to the vault while the others herded the other people inside. Uh, Makeley, startled by a sudden movement, ended up shooting one of the tellers in the elbow. And as the teller fell to the floor, he pressed the silent alarm. Apparently, though, there had been several false alarms from this bank recently. So when the two responding officers walked in, their guns were still holstered. So just with a little bit of struggle. Um, and a couple of shots fired. The cops were disarmed very easily. Wow. When the gang got what they came for, cash and bonds totaling around $27,000, they surrounded themselves with hostages and headed for the door. This was back when running boards came standard on most cars. You're familiar with running boards? Yeah. Um, so the gangsters pile in the car and they force the hostages onto the running boards to act as human shields during the drive. Because Dillinger learned from this last attack, you know the cops are going to shoot back. Well, they're not going to shoot civilians, and especially not with shotguns. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, this was so effective that it became the standard going forward for the gang and for many other bank robbers. Because of course, of course, this worked. Uh, come December, eight of the ten most wanted criminals in Chicago were members of the Dillinger gang. They were prolific. This was reason enough for the group to disband for a while, though. So Dillinger and Billy went to Wisconsin while Pierpont and a few others headed south with a new acquaintance, George Babyface Nelson. Oh, Now, you know this name, right? Babyface Nelson. Yeah. Um, for what it's worth, he hated being called Babyface. Like really, really hated it to the point where everybody knew better than to let him hear you call him that. So from this perspective, it's a bummer these days that everybody knows him as Babyface Nelson. Mm -hmm. Um, His real name for the record wasn't even George Nelson. It was Lester Gillis. If you look up his picture, though, you'll see that it was a very apt nickname. And personally, I think it rules. Like I would (laughs) much rather be called Babyface Nelson than Lester Gillis. Just me. I don't know. If your name is Lester Gillis, I apologize. Uh, This dude, though, was nuts. Babyface was nuts. He was the type of guy who just loved shooting people and being as chaotic as humanly possible. He was very far from being level-headed and cool under pressure the way the rest of the gang was perceived as being. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, we're we're adding a new element into the mix here by bringing him on. When things cooled off a little, the Dillinger gang reunited and headed down to Florida, where they celebrated Christmas and New Year's together. So no robberies. We're just vibing. Okay. Um, Afterwards, they split up again and agreed to meet up in Arizona in a few weeks. And this is, you know, near this time. We're, you know, doing some robberies and mayhem and stuff. Uh, Dillinger and Hamilton headed back to Chicago to cash some stolen bonds. But when they weren't able to, they decided, you know, we'll just rob a few more banks. Why not? They both had plenty of money at this point, even without the bonds. Dillinger was just feeling kind of bored and restless, you know. Yeah, it's You know, you want to keep your hand in. You, you don't want to lose your touch. Um, he had no trouble convincing Hamilton to join him because he's John Dillinger. You know, like, oh, I want to rob a bank. Are you John Dillinger? Oh, no problem. This will be <laughs> fine. I guess he hadn't heard about, you know, the, the tennis match back at the old soda fountain and just the nonsense from before. Uh, So he, Dillinger, had started to think of himself as invincible because he's been making headlines for months at this point. So he decided that they could hire a getaway driver, but they don't really need anyone else on the job. It's just more people to split the money with. Like, we got this. No problem. Um, He didn't think there was a need to even have a couple of guys standing guard outside the bank because they had their bulletproof vests, which they have been stealing from police stations. Um, So it didn't really matter if the cops showed up. So I'm sure you can see where this is going. Yes, I I think I can. Uh, Yeah. So on January 15th, they headed for the first national bank in East Chicago, Indiana. Dillinger, carrying a trombone case, strolled in just a few minutes before closing time. He very casually opened up the case, pulled out a Tommy gun, and approached a cashier to announce that this was a stick-up. A different teller pressed the silent alarm in response. Yeah. Yeah. Another famous piece of Dillinger lore comes into play here. And I love this. And this was like this moment is a reason why he was so beloved at the time and continues to be remembered as fondly as he is. A man who had just cashed a check, left his money on the counter and started backing away because, you know, he hears like, oh, my God, they're here to rob it. He sees a Tommy gun like, oh, God, Um, when he noticed this, Dillinger said to the man, you go ahead and pick it up. We don't want your money, just the banks. Hmm. We're not stealing from people. We're stealing from these institutions who are stealing from people. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, Hamilton had been waiting in the lobby and Dillinger called him in to start grabbing the cash once he had the employees and bystanders herded into a corner. Dillinger noticed a police car outside, but he told Hamilton to take his time anyway. I'm John Dillinger. I'm not worried about it. Yet again, the police assumed this was a false alarm. So the officer who entered the bank alone didn't bother removing his overcoat which is a problem since it was completely buttoned up, leaving him with no access to his gun. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He, along with the bank president, became human shields for Dillinger and Hamilton on their way out of the bank. As they made their way to the car, a patrolman named Patrick O'Malley called, the police, called to the police officer. So the officer ducked down and O'Malley got in several shots at Dillinger, all of which were deflected by his bulletproof vest dillinger returned fire and one of his bullets hit o'malley in the heart hmm. one of the other nearby officers had better luck and managed to shoot hamilton through one of the weak spots in his vest dillinger grabbed the bag of money with one hand and hamilton with the other and got into the car escaping with twenty thousand dollars but he had now committed murder yeah not good and he was not he was not babyface nelson This was not like he wasn't just okay with this like that haunted him through meticulous detective work as well as a series of inexplicably naive decisions on the part of the Dillinger gang every single one of them was arrested in Tucson on January 25th and for Dillinger he was arrested on murder charges Mm -hmm. Uh, he was transferred to Crown Point Indiana for that reason because he's being tried for that specifically Whereas all of the other guys were sent back to Ohio. Pierpont, Makeley and Clark never again regained their freedom. They all either died in prison or were killed in the electric chair within the year. Within the year. Within the year. Oh yeah. Dillinger, however, was put in an escape proof jail that was escape proof in much the same way that the Titanic was unsinkable. Hmm. If you're John Dillinger. Mm-hmm. I love this story. This is the one that I texted you when I was working on this research and I was like, I'm in my favorite Dillinger story. Like, I'm so excited to tell you about this. This is it. Oh, I, I, I remember that. It was a, uh, it was a frantic, exciting text. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, here we go. So when trying to get his client out of jail through legitimate means did not work. Dillinger's lawyer, Louis Pickett, offered a judge several thousand dollars to smuggle a gun into the county jail. And he took it on the morning of March 3rd with fourteen dollars and a gun. Dillinger was ready to make a break for it. It was raining that day. So after breakfast, he and 14 other inmates were taken to the second floor corridor for their exercise time. Now, this is another one of the jails, like I mentioned before, that like when I looked it up, it looks like a house. I mean, at least today, it it looks like a residence. Mm -hmm. I don't have information saying that it was, but it it looks like a Victorian manor, kind of. Okay. So just to kind of set the scene a little bit. So a little after nine o'clock, a sheriff's deputy unlocked the door for some of the trusted inmates who were known as trustees, not trustees, but trustees, to come in for the morning cleanup. Now, some sources say that they were coming in to like distribute soap to the inmates. But what Tolan's book says, and he has so much in-depth research, I kind of go with the Tolan version, is that they were there to tidy up. Um, so Dillinger approaches the deputy, shoves the barrel of his gun into the deputy's stomach and tells him to get into one of the open cells. The deputy was too stunned to move at first, but the trustees all piled in dillinger grilled the deputy on the layout of the building then took him as a temporary hostage and moved down to the first floor of the jail eventually using various employees against each other by like hey it's me the deputy jailer will you come up here real quick i gotta show you something like doing that move over and over and over again with different employees wow yeah um he was dillinger managed to corral a deputy three prison guards and the warden into a cell with the trustees. He also, yeah, he also picked up a couple of hostages along the way, including a National Guardsman, a deputy sheriff, a trustee, and three vigilante farmers who had been down in the kitchen having breakfast. <laughs> so with that taken care of, he grabbed two machine guns from the warden's office, just walked right in, took his guns, um, and headed back upstairs to see if any of the other inmates wanted to leave with them. Oh. Yeah, nice. Like, he overlooking the murder which was self-defense ish a nice guy Uh, three men including herbert youngblood took him up on the offer at the bottom of the stairs leading into the basement two of the would-be escapees hustled the vigilante farmers into a supply closet like to kind of we have too many hostages at this point you guys guard these guys we're not going to worry about it Dillinger and Youngblood continued on to the garage where they came across several more potential hostages and a Buick. Unfortunately, the keys weren't there and everyone acted like they didn't know where the keys were. So Dillinger pulled the ignition wires from every single car in the place, like went through every cop car, the Buick, every single vehicle. He pulled the ignition wires so nobody would be able to follow him because he's going to have to go on foot. Okay, right, 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 right. After donning a raincoat he'd taken off of the farmers, Dillinger and Youngblood and the hostage deputy strolled right out of the escape-proof jail. Just walked right out onto the sidewalk. Wow. Um, just They went just a little bit down the street and stole a car and took another hostage, a mechanic from a nearby Ford garage, in sight of several witnesses. When the police were contacted by these witnesses to say, Hey, John Dillinger escaped. He's got hostages the police assumed it was a prank and just said they'd look into it because (laughs) this was an escape proof jail. We're not going to be bothered with this. Right. Mm -hmm. Now escaping from an escape proof jail is noteworthy enough on its own, but what makes this story so legendary in the annals of crime history is a lie that Dillinger told the mechanic as they were driving away. This is something that most people think they know about John Dillinger because this lie has been repeated so many times. He held up the very real gun that had been smuggled into him and said, it's a wooden gun. That's what got me out. You wouldn't think a guy can make a break with a pea shooter like this, would you? <laughs> this story was so fantastical and got repeated so many times that to this day, most people believe Dillinger escaped Crown Point with a wooden gun. But it was real. Wow. Yeah. Later, <laughs> he did carve a wooden gun to give his family as a souvenir, but that's the only wooden gun he ever touched in his life was a replica wow it was a real gun and i think if i'm remembering public enemies the movie correctly they did a wooden gun in the movie or it might have been carved out of soap but that was just you know kind of keep the lie going
1: okay
0: real gun smuggled in by a judge wow yep that's incredible isn't it yeah I mean, to this, so I went back in 2008 to the Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington, D.C., and I was so excited because they have, like, all this, like, replica stuff. They have a replica of the Bonnie and Clyde car full of all the bullet holes and stuff, which I actually believe, at least at the time, that car was the one that was used in the movie, the Warren beatty Faye Dunaway movie. Um, But they also had, oh, this is John Dillinger's wooden gun. Okay, guys. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: okay so as smoothly as the escape went this is when he made his most critical mistake he drove a stolen car across state lines heading from Crown Point Indiana to Chicago Illinois which meant that the feds could now get involved oh, mm-hmm. okay. they they couldn't get involved before right now they can because he's crossing state lines with a stolen vehicle Poof. Dillinger brought Hamilton and Van Meter back onto the team, as well as Babyface Nelson. Only three days after Dillinger's big prison break, the four of them, joined by Van Meter's friends Eddie Green and Tommy Carroll, robbed the Security National Bank in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, of more than forty-nine thousand dollars. So this was, if you recall, this is like double what they were getting before, like the twenty-three thousand, twenty-seven thousand. Like this is double what they're normally getting. Right. In South Dakota, like a new state for them like kind of a big deal it's truly a miracle they got away with anything at all though because Babyface went buck wild bananas pretty much the moment he walked into that bank he started firing at nothing at all for the drama then later shot a guard to death because he thought the man was going for his gun Mm. Mm -hmm. a week later the same crew hit the first national bank of mason city iowa This particular bank, though claiming to be unworried about being robbed, also had a balcony 15 feet overhead where their guard, Tom Walters, could keep an eye on the entire bank floor. This guard was behind bulletproof glass and had been instructed to shoot a gas gun six times if there was any trouble. Green, Hamilton and Van Meter walked into the bank first with their guns drawn and demanded to speak to the president. Hamilton and Green ushered the bystanders onto the floor while Van Meter chased after the bank president who took off running the second he saw them come in. He just just took off. He just beat it. He was like, I got to get out of here. The guard finally noticed the machine guns and started firing his gas gun, um, which is, I believe, was tear gas. Like everybody in the bank at the time, like they're tied up all these bystanders. You can't leave. You're like getting wrecked with this tear gas, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Hamilton went for the money while Green started firing through the gun slit into the bullet. Like there was a slit for the guard's gun in the bulletproof glass. Mm -hmm. And Green was able to fire through that tiny slit. And he managed to graze Walters a couple of times. Wow. Yeah. A good shot. Uh, Meanwhile, the switchboard operator who was watching from the balcony managed to get to a window and called down to someone in the street to go get the police because they're being robbed. Babyface Nelson turns around, shows her his Tommy gun, and said, "Lady, you're telling me." <laughs> 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 yeah, so <Very> <laughs> it's great. That's it's a great line. As much as I'm not like a super fan of Babyface Nelson, that cracks me up. He's a, he's a bit of a wild card. He is definitely he's the he's the Charlie of the gang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So while all that's going on, Dillinger took anything of interest from the investment department, then got to work rounding up and organizing hostages into a human shield because this is their thing. Now a huge crowd had begun to gather outside, including a reporter and a cameraman. And the fact that there was a cameraman shooting all of this made all of the spectators, like the other civilians who had gathered to watch all of this go down. They thought he was filming a movie. They didn't think any of it was real. Um, So that's kind of a problem because people are they're not trying to get away. They're like, "Ooh, let's watch this bank robbery they're filming. I wonder if this is Douglas Fairbanks. Like, "Ooh, what could be going? You know, Mm -hmm. not the best. So as they made their escape, despite being literally surrounded by innocent bystanders, both Hamilton and Dillinger were shot in their shoulders by a deputy firing from a third story window. There were as many as 26 hostages piled onto and into the getaway car, including in the back seat, on the running boards, on the rear bumper clinging to the back window, and even two on the front mud guard. Like, surrounded. Wow. The police pursued them anyway. With Babyface shooting at them the entire way. Like, leaning out his window around all of these hostages and shooting at them because he was just out of his mind Damn. he was so, just out of his mind um so they managed to go for more than 45 minutes before they were able to shake the police after that they you know the cops let go they finally let all the hostages go like out in the middle of nowhere and of course it's you know 1933 at this point no cell phones you're just kind of out there good luck sure. yeah have fun um the gang then headed for minnesota to get patched up since two of them had been shot Dillinger and Billy then moved to St. Paul. They laid low there for a while until their landlady began getting suspicious about the number of visitors they had. Landladies turning them into the cops is a running theme. So we've had two so far Mm -hmm. and there's one more at the end. Okay. Okay. Um, On March 31st, two FBI agents knocked on their door. Billy answered telling them that her husband was away and they could not come in to wait for him because she wasn't dressed well they were like well go get dressed lady like we're coming in so she closed the door and told dillinger that the cops were there nearly 10 minutes later still waiting to be let in the agent spotted van meter coming up the stairs toward them when questioned he claimed to be a soap salesman then drew a pistol oh here are my samples how would you like to buy them a shootout ensued which inspired dillinger to come out guns blazing he and Billy then ran down the back stairs into their car. Van Meter met Billy and Dillinger at Eddie Green's apartment where it was revealed that Dillinger had been shot in the leg. So he has now been shot twice, like pretty close together. Right. Um, it was time for a break. On April 5th, Dillinger and Billy traveled to Mooresville. This visit home paints a great picture of how he was viewed by Americans on the whole. He was treated like a hometown hero. Gossip started to spread around town that he was staying at his father's farm until everyone in town knew exactly where he was, except for the two federal agents sent to Mooresville to track him down. (laughs) During one evening of his visit, the Dillinger family threw a large house party that included not only distant relations and family friends, but even people who they barely knew from in town everybody came out to party with one of America's most wanted. He was so generous and so charming that several residents ended up sending a petition to the governor asking him to pardon Dillinger of his previous crimes because he was such a great guy and just needed a clean slate to become a model citizen. Believe it or not, the state of Indiana didn't even consider this. (laughs) Not surprising. Yeah, not, not at all. The day after they returned to Chicago, April 8th, FBI agents arrested Billy at State and Austin Tavern. She would end up serving two years for harboring Dillinger. They never saw each other again. Oh. Yeah. And she's the one like Billy was the one who's featured in the movie Public Enemies. Like she's like his well-known girlfriend. Like the one who, if you were going to give John Dillinger a love of his life, it would be Billy for shit. Okay. Yeah. So this was like a big, like big deal for him. Um, He said he's, you know, he's going to spare no expense. He hires her this great lawyer. um, And while all that's going on, he flees to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and joined back up with Homer Van Meter. So in order to spare no expense for Billy, uh, he was going to need to rob some banks. But they would need more guns and bulletproof vests first. So he and Van Meter robbed the Warsaw, Indiana police station of the items they would need with very little resistance. They cleaned them out. I think it was something like 14 bulletproof vests and all of their submachine guns just cleaned them out. Mm, Wow. Mm, Yeah, you got plenty now. Soon after, Dillinger, Van Meter, Hamilton, Carol, Babyface Nelson, Pat Riley, and four of their female companions decided to find a safe place to hang out and unwind for a few days ahead of their next crime spree. Because, like, they've been working real hard. Sure. You know, like, how many robberies have we already covered? It's been, like, four months into the year. That's exhausting. Someone suggested a lodge outside of Manitowish Waters, Wisconsin called Little Bohemia which would be all but empty at that time of year. Mm-hmm. Little Bohemia. If you're pretty familiar with Dillinger Nelson, pretty much any of the, the criminals during this time period, you've probably heard of little Bohemia. Right. Um, they arrived the afternoon of Friday, April 20th with the intention of only staying for the weekend. We like just, you know, a little bit of time to decompress then, you know, back to the grind. Now, there's some speculation that Emil Wanatka, the owner of Little Bohemia, had previous dealings with Dillinger's lawyer, Pickett. And that's how the gang knew about the lodge. But Wanatka always swore that he had no idea who any of these guys were um, until the night after their arrival. So April 21st, he was playing poker with Dillinger and happened to notice that not only Dillinger, but all of his friends had pistols and shoulder holsters under their coats. And that's when he was like... You know, they do look familiar. Hmm. Right. That Sunday, um, so the following day, the 22nd, under the guise of taking her son to a birthday party, Mrs. Wanatka left the lodge and informed a family friend that the Dillinger gang was there and he should alert the authorities. While she was away, the gang had target practice with some glass bottles, which Emil Wanatka outshot all of them. Oh. They were not precision shooters. You know, they... So a Tommy gun, I have actually fired a Tommy gun before, which because of my love for John Dillinger, I am not necessarily a gun person, but I have followed his, you know, the story of John Dillinger for so long that I, you know, I'm curious, like, what's this? What's, you know, the deal with these Tommy guns? So when I went to the gun range, they had a little strap and there was some there's like a little counter like when you see in movies like police doing like target practice there's always a counter right there sure there's a hook in the counter so they had like to attach the tommy gun to the counter because when you go to fire it even if you're holding it with both hands of course because it's a machine gun but it starts to go up like you, you cannot hold it in place like these guns are crazy um boof it's, it's, it's not a good scene. So um, that's why they're not maybe so good at shooting because they're used to like, if you're used to having to hold this like monster of a machine in one place, then you're, you're just not going to have the stance and the aim to like shoot a pistol out of glass bottle. Well, I guess, I guess at the same time their, their goal wasn't to kill people. Their goal was to get the cash right. and the, and these were just the utilities Of making that happen. So Right, exactly. Okay. So, but that's you know, that was a big little feather in uh Amel Wanaka's cap, he was nailing these glass bottles when the other guys couldn't do it. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's great. Good for him. (laughs) He he kind of needed a win after all this. So either doing the target practice, they threw a baseball around, um, just you know, having a nice time, just chillaxed. Um, while all this is going on, Dillinger sent Riley into St. Paul to get some money and ammunition. Um, The plan was they were going to leave when Riley got back. Meanwhile, five carloads of feds were on their way. Sunday evenings were usually quite busy at Little Bohemia because of a weekly dinner special. So there were about 75 civilians leaving as the agents arrived. A straggling car with three male customers caught the attention of the feds. So they shouted for the car to stop. When it didn't, they opened fire, instantly killing one of the men and wounding two others. These were guys who just so happened to be the last ones to leave. Mm. They had nothing to do with the gang. Uh, chaos broke out and didn't relent for several hours. Riley finally returned as the shooting began. When the guns turned on him, he threw the car in reverse and got the hell out of there. And of course, Dillinger and they—they don't know really what's you know. They're waiting for him to get back so they can leave. At the same time, hearing the gunfire, Dillinger, Hamilton, and Van Meter abandoned their card game and grabbed their guns. Van Meter began firing from a second story window while Carol shot from the roof. Another barrage of bullets, accompanied by wild cackling, began bursting from the small cabin where Babyface Nelson and his wife had been staying. So he's living for it, like having the time of his life. Like When I say cackling, I'm not joking. Um, just (laughs) he's thrilled after only a few seconds of shooting dillinger hamilton and van meter escaped through an unguarded back door so the way the feds had set up the place it was surrounded but not really because little bohemia there's this big lake back behind it so it was surrounded on three sides because the lake where the lodge was there's this steep embankment down the lake nobody's going to be able to escape that way don't worry about it so they escaped that way of course, of course, no problem at all. They go out the back door. Nobody's even at the back door by sliding down the embankment to the edge of the lake. They were able to keep completely out of the line of sight because it's a very steep embankment. They can't even, the feds don't even know they're gone. Wow. Don't even know that they're gone because babyface is still firing. Yeah. Because he's insane. Yeah. Um, so Dillinger, Hamilton, Van Meter down, down the bank. They followed the lake north in search of a car to steal. Carol was not very far behind them, but the other three were so they were like out of sight by the time he reached the lake. So he made his way to Minnesota on his own. Just Carol was fine. Babyface, of course, was the last to leave because he's having the time of his life. He took a similar route, though he headed south instead of north. But they hadn't planned for this. So they, you know, no prior discussion of which way to escape. He ended up going on his own little kooky adventure, which involves stealing a car, taking hostages, and ultimately spending a few days hiding out on a Chippewa reservation. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, It's worth noting, just if you're, you know, like me and into it, that the scene in the movie Public Enemies, they actually filmed at the real little Bohemia because it is still operational today. Like they still have glass in the windows with the bullet holes and every, like they're very into it there. Okay. Yeah. 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 So if you've seen the movie, that's the real place, you know, very, very cool. So the next day, Dillinger, Hamilton and Van Meter were spotted by authorities as they drove through Hastings, Minnesota during the hybrid car chase slash shootout that went on for several miles. Hamilton was mortally wounded by a bullet in the back. So they're down another guy. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, Dillinger and Van Meter disappeared to Calumet City, Illinois. They stayed so far under the radar that pretty much everyone believed they had fled the country. With most people thinking Dillinger was somewhere in the UK. Like people were calling in sightings of him around London. Like very, like he's not even here anymore. Don't worry about it. Wanting to stay that far under the radar, Dillinger underwent plastic surgery to change his face and fingerprints. He almost died during the procedure when the surgeon gave him too much ether too quickly, but they were able to get him breathing again after several minutes. Like he turned blue. Whoa. They thought he was gone. Yeah. Uh, it bears mentioning that these doctors weren't exactly on the level. Yeah, I, I, I assume. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the general consensus from people who knew him was that he was still recognizable after surgery. He just looked like John Dillinger with the mumps. Yeah, so he just like very puffy, like kind of weird looking. Mm-hmm. I haven't been able to find pictures of him afterwards, but if you look at his death mask, like his face looks much rounder. Okay. Um. So for Dillinger's thirty-first birthday, June twenty-second, um, which he celebrated at Chicago's French Casino nightclub, he was officially awarded the title of Public Enemy Number One by the FBI wow oh, happy birthday johnny quite a prestigious gift from people who didn't seem to like him that much i feel like um he took this as a sign that he needed to retire if he wanted to stay alive so he made arrangements with an elderly couple who would allow him to pose as their son for a trip into mexico for a cost of ten thousand dollars But of course, in order to get that money, as well as the $25,000 he felt he would need to live on once he got to Mexico, Dillinger was going to need to rob one last bank. Van Meter chose the Merchants National of South Bend, Indiana as their target because that was where the local post office made their very, very large deposits. They expected to get a bare minimum of $100,000 from the robbery. Bare minimum. Big one. Oh, yeah. After bringing Babyface Nelson on board, they planned to hit the bank on Saturday, June 30th. In the meantime, Dillinger just vibed, going to wrestling matches, baseball games, and spending time with his new girlfriend, Polly Hamilton. He knew he was never going to see Billy again. He moved on. Uh, The day of his final robbery was a busy one at the bank, with an estimated 25 customers inside when the gang arrived. One thing to note is that Dillinger, Van Meter, and Babyface were joined by two associates of Babyfaces who have never been identified. Hmm. No clue who they are. A very interesting possibility is that one of them was Pretty Boy Floyd. Several eyewitnesses swore it was him. Mm -hmm. As a quick sidebar, Pretty Boy Floyd was by far one of the most beloved bank robbers of his day, probably second only to Dillinger, because it was rumored that while he was in the bank, he would set all of the mortgage paperwork on fire. In essence, freeing the homeowners from their debt, because that was the only record of who owed money on their mortgages. Wow. Oh, yeah. Just burn them just to be nice. Yeah, sticking it to the man. Yeah, okay. he's getting nothing out of it. Mm-hmm. You probably guessed this considering Babyface was involved, but the whole scene got very chaotic very fast. I would assume. Yeah, you would. Uh, There was an all-out firefight outside while most of the gang was inside the bank. You leave Babyface outside, he's just gonna go nuts, just firing at everybody just to to giggle about it. Um, When all was said and done, the gang killed a police officer and wounded six bystanders, including a child who was shot through the hand. Hmm. This child was a very proactive. Babyface was a pretty small guy. This kid jumped on his back and tried to get his gun away from him. And that's when he was shot. Wow. Yeah. This kid was not here to mess around. Yeah. Um Homer Van Meter was also shot in the head, but he recovered. After all of that, they walked away with about thirty thousand dollars. Far short of the hundred thousand they had expected. Mm-hmm. Still, Dillinger now had just enough money to get to Mexico and arranged with the elderly couple to leave on the morning of July 23rd. Keep that in mind. He decided his last few weeks in America would be spent on leisure with quite a lot of his time going to Polly Hamilton. At that time, Polly Hamilton lived in an apartment being rented out by a Romanian immigrant named Anna Cumpunas, better known as Anna Sage, which doesn't sound quite as elegant. Uh, So... Her landlady. The landlady. The landlady. Anna was at that time facing deportation for having, quote, low moral character because she was a former sex worker who currently ran two brothels. Mm. Dillinger enjoyed spending time with Anna, even when Polly wasn't around. They were friends because, you know, they were much closer in age than he was to Polly. They had a lot to talk about. They both liked baseball. Like they just they would hang out with each other. But she would have done anything to avoid deportation, including turning her friend over to the FBI. Mm, right. With Anna's help, the FBI arranged to capture Dillinger outside of the biograph theater on the evening of July twenty second. Also the day before. Hours before. The movie was at night. He was going to be leaving in the morning. Um, they had planned to see Manhattan Melodrama starring Clark Gable. So it was going to be Dillinger, Polly, and Anna. I'm not going to go into too much detail about this because it bums me out, but there were agents surrounding the outside of the theater and parked in nearby cars. After the movie ended, Dillinger, Polly, and Anna emerged onto the sidewalk. As they walked by, Dillinger locked eyes with FBI agent Melvin Purvis, who he knew because Purvis had been tracking him for a while. Purvis gave the signal and Dillinger took off toward a nearby alley while reaching into his jacket to remove his gun, which he never was able to get out. He was shot twice and fell dead just outside of the alley. Immediately, there was a demand for souvenirs. After the body was removed, bystanders who had witnessed the whole scene, because this was, I mean, people leave in a movie theater, just like now, you know, crowded sidewalk, Um So these witnesses started dipping handkerchiefs, papers, and even the clothes they were wearing into the pool of Dillinger's blood on the sidewalk. Once the attendants got him cleaned up and law enforcement had everything they needed, Dillinger's body was put on display in the Cook County morgue with more than 15,000 people coming to see it in the day and a half it was open to the public. 15,000 people in a day and a half came to look at him. Wow. Yeah. Some onlookers even followed him to the E.F. Harvey Funeral Home in Mooresville, Indiana, Uh, followed him all the way home, joined by over 500 local citizens who had been awaiting his arrival. His body was once more put on display, with some people filing past four or five times. Others had come from as far as California to see him. Mm. He was beloved. People were devastated. Like, some people came by to look at him, like, saying, like, oh, this is a lesson on morality and crime doesn't pay and all that. But a lot of people, it was like legitimately to pay respects. Right. Hoping to avoid a scene at the cemetery, the family listed the burial service in the newspaper as taking place a day later than was actually planned. In spite of that, over 5,000 people showed up to watch through the gate. Even though, I mean, imagine the crowd if it had taken place when the paper said it would. That's just mind-blowing to me. And a lot of those people had been waiting there since like the crack of dawn, just in case it was that day. A tent had been placed over the grave because bad weather was expected. Just as the service was about to begin, thunder boomed overhead and it began pouring rain. The family and friends who had gathered at the gravesite ran back to their cars to wait it out. And the storm passed in about 10 minutes. So they regathered in the cemetery after a few words, John Dillinger was lowered into the ground. The moment he was in, there was another boom of thunder and another torrential rainfall. This time everyone stayed to say their final goodbyes. And that's where the wild and wacky story of John Dillinger comes to an end. Um, I would like to add that Anna Sage received only a partial reward for turning Dillinger in and was deported to Timosuara, Romania in 1936, despite what she had been promised. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's an amazing story. It's quite a tale. Yeah. Quite a life. Well, thank you for listening to this epic two-part extravaganza, uh, giving us a little bit of your time today. Hopefully you found John Dillinger to be interesting. If you didn't, what the hell? Uh, if you did, <laughs> <laughs> please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. If you'd like to check out some more pictures of John, in addition to the ones I posted last week, they'll be on our Instagram and Twitter accounts. We are at Fantastic Pod on both. You can also drop us a line at Fantastichistorypod at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. Goodbye.